This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Joan Silber, author of nine books. Her first book, Household Words, won the Penn Hemingway Award. Her short story collection, Ideas of Heaven, was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Story Prize. And another collection, called Fools, was longlisted for the National Book Award. She has also written a craft book on writing called The Art of Time in Fiction. Her latest novel, Improvement, is a New York Times book review editor's choice and named one of top 10 fiction titles of 2017 by the Wall Street Journal. Improvement tells the story of a young single mother living in New York named Raina and her eccentric Aunt Kiki, who at the novel's opening is living in Turkey, but then moves back to New York. The novel focuses on decisions Raina makes about her life that have ripple effects for her boyfriend, his group of friends, her aunt, and strangers vulnerable to the consequences of Raina's choices. We began the discussion with Joan Silber talking about the impetus for the novel. I had been wanting to sort of work Turkey into my writing in some way for a long time because I had visited happily as a tourist a couple of times, three times actually. Um, And I would say that Turkey changed in the popular imagination, um, you know, under the current administration in Turkey as I was working on it. So that was one factor. But the story of the aunt who, who was married to a Turkish guy and the her niece, who is sort of the focal point of the kind of core story, um, is really, c- came from a couple of things. Um, it was, I think I started writing right after Hurricane Sandy hit New York. And, um, uh, you know, it was a big, big hurricane, but the big thing was that the um, Con Ed Tower on 14th Street was knocked out. So all of downtown was in darkness, inclu- including my apartment. I live on the Lower East Side. Um, and one of the things that I heard on the news, my radio is still working, um, was that elderly people in housing projects who often lived on quite high floors and didn't have ele- you know, elevators working were like, oh, yeah, we're fine without electricity. We're, you know, don't worry about us. They were much less sort of technologically dependent than young people. And so that, uh, that kind of worked out in the character of Kiki, who has a, I had posited for her a history of living in the countryside in Turkey without electricity. And, and I wanted her to be this, you know, quite unflappable person. So that was one strain that fit into it. And then um, Raina, the niece, who's this sort of young, tough, interesting 20-something-year-old, 26 probably, with a, with a kid on her own, I gave her a boyfriend who was at Rikers Island. The lo- I guess everybody knows what Rikers is, the local short-term jail. Um, and he's there for a very minor uh, marijuana offense. Um, so he's only there for three months. But I, once I got that in there, then stuff started unfolding um, and, the, and the plot kind of took off on its own. And I have uh, the three books I did before then were linked stories. And, and they, you know, I feel like I've done my best. I felt, felt up till then that I had done my best work in those stories. Um, and I wanted to do a novel. I wanted to do something that was different. So I wasn't always doing the same thing. This was not linked stories, but they were linked characters. And one of the things I was thinking about when I read this, so it opens with Reina and Kiki sort of focusing on them. 
then we learn about these sort of ancillary characters that and somehow are related. It's maybe like a six degree of separation of people who you show. And I was left with this question, what makes a community? And are you sometimes in community with people you don't know? And I don't know if that was a question that you thought about at all, but I'm just wondering what you think of it. Well, I think writers think about that because, you know, imaginatively, we want to be in contact with everyone, Um, that there's a sense that, you know, writing gives you access to other, or, or reading gives you access to other people's interior lives. Uh, and so there's a, a connection that way. And I'm always interested in chains of causation. You know, plot is sort of cause and effect. And I have a sort of eccentric idea of it because I'm interested in the very long-term cause and effect. So one act over here can have ramifications, you know, over there much later. So one of the things that I walked away with this book was that there's a lot of failed love in there and these mm-hmm. questions about failed love and how far will we go for love. Um, certainly one of the questions that I think Kiki asks early on is what happens to old love? You know, that's one of the great questions of modern life because we don't usually marry, you know, our young sweethearts. You know, we don't have continuous lives so frequently in that way. I think it's a question. Very few people are with the original people they were with, you know. So I wanted to pursue that. And I also, um, I think the question that it always ends in, you know, bitterness is, is, you know, kind of a false idea. So I wanted to show how it kind of plays out in all sorts of different ways. That's definitely a, you know, a burning question for me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Joan Silber, author of nine books, including Fools, The Art of Time and Fiction, and Improvement. Another question I think the story asked, so Raina, the main character, is dating Boyd, who you mentioned was in Rikers for just a little bit of marijuana, and she goes and visits him all the time. And then when he gets out, he gets into this (laughs) deal where he's buying cigarettes in Virginia and bringing them to New York because they cost a lot more in New York and he's going to make money with a few friends. And at some point, he needs some help with Raina. And Raina has a young child. She's not, as we, you know, as far as we know, she's not, you know, in, in any crime in her life so far. And so it begs the question, like, how far do we go for love? Um, and and Raina's agony of decision about that, you know, is is a, a crucial point in the plot. Um, I think that she and also what Raina does is, I think, very characteristic of what people do. They have one idea, and then what they actually do is a little bit different from that. And of course, that's the realm of fiction. You know, when we what we actually do in the face of you know what we think about it. I mean, fiction has the rare privilege of of relating what's going on in people's heads at the same time it's relating the action. So uh, you know, we can do it more directly than than other forms. So it was it was a great you know moment for me uh, as a writer um, to do that. Um, I probably you know there's another part part in the story where people quote dog trainers who say love is not enough. Um, and uh, I think uh, I do write a little about the limits of love, like having a great passion is not, ne- not necessarily the great solution uh, to um, all of life's issues. And there may be a kind of pre-echo of that in, in Raina's decision. Well, there's this beautiful line that, that you write 
in there when she's trying to decide. And she said, I was going to pack the car and count out the cash. I was going to let him store his illegal cigarettes in my house, all because of what stirred me, all because of what Boyd was to me, all because of beauty. And I love that line, but I also was wondering, you know, if she did it, does it mean it was more lust, like something she she thought if she did this for him, she could possess him in some way? Does it mean it's not love if we don't go that far? And um, what does it mean either way? But I I liked that her awareness was she still had a, a, a foot in reality. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, I, uh, you know, she's an aware character, even if she's, you know, about to do something relatively foolish. Um, she doesn't know Boyd that that well. You know, they've been together a while, um, and she's gotten to know him better by visiting him in, um, at Rikers, because that's a, a kind of innately intimate circumstance. Um, he's, you know, he's so in, he's so vulnerable. He's sitting there in his, you know, ugly jumpsuit. Um, so, but she had, it's not like she's been with him for years and years. And I think that the nature of love has to do with that too. Um, even what they owe each other is different, um, for there being a relatively new, um, relationship. Uh, and I think that's part of the story too. And Kiki, of course, we see Kiki when she's leaving her Turkish husband. And that's, um, you know, they've hit the, they've hit the limits, uh, even though they've been together for a long time. So again, I don't have a preset idea of what people should do or what constitutes real love or real conduct, but I think there are many gradations uh, within it. Another question about this book is, what is redemption? What does it mean? And hopefully this isn't giving too much away, but Basically, when Reina was going to help Boyd, she was going to drive the car uh, to Virginia and get the cigarettes and bring them back. And at the last minute, she decided not to. And then um, because of her choice, an accident happened and affected many, many lives uh, throughout the rest of the book. And that really haunted her. And that's that's kind of karmic. But I think Reina was searching for some kind of peace after that and some kind of redemption, perhaps. And I'm just wondering if, if this idea of redemption was on your mind and, and can you actually get it? Um, you know, when people ask me about the title, like, why did you call the book Improvement? Um, I say that um, things can't be fixed, but sometimes they can be improved. Um, and, and I think of her final gesture. I mean, she does something generous to, to compensate for what she feels she's done. Um, I, I, I feel that that's important. Um, and I do, there's a lot of, I mean, there's minor questions of um, kind of reparations in the book. Um, one of the characters works um, for museums figuring out which paintings were bought during the Nazi era, which is a, a big thing now to find, try, try and hunt down those, you know, paintings that don't really belong where they are. Um, and there's lots of uh, a sense of, you know, how can and, and even uh, the truck driver is trying to collect on his insurance, which is another kind of reparations. Um, we're all trying to get that right. We're all trying to get back what we think we deserve. And we're all trying to um, maybe make good on flaws that we've we've had. Um, I think that's to the good. I think people should want to uh, make reparations and and, you know, do as much as they can. Um, uh, in the original drafts, um, Raina was felt herself more at fault. 
And my friend who always reads for me, whom I'll talk about later, said, you know, it's really not her entirely her fault what happens. You know, she's a she's a chain in the cause of events, but it's not, you know, or a cause in the chain of events. Um, but it's not really her. So I tone that down a little bit so she doesn't sound as if she's neurotically guilty. Um, but she really, really has cause to um, feel sorry. Um, and anyway, I wanted to value that in the book and to not to not show it as hopeless. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Joan Silber, author of nine books, including Fools, The Art of Time and Fiction, and Improvement. Several of your characters had money problems, which is obviously intricate to your plot. But is that something that you recognize was a commonality? Or is that you know, a way to create more tension in their lives, or that's just what this story was looking for? I noticed that money always comes into my stories. And Grace Paley, who was my teacher, a fabulous short story writer, um, Grace used to say that the source of all plots is blood and money, um, blood meaning family or love. Um, and it, and most of what we go through in, in life is that. Um, you know, there are other forms of trouble, but... Um, but those are really crucial ones. And love is easy to do. We're all always thinking about love. But the money one, I think, is it's always there. It's always a factor where we're tempted, we're pressured, our sense of pride has to do with having money, our resilience has to do with not having money. It's just, um, it's crucial, I think, in all stories. And I just, I found a way to do it in this one. Um, I almost never write about rich people. So all of my characters have some you know, money dilemmas as part of what is a pressure on them. So ha- having mostly written linked stories, you know, what was your experience of writing a novel? Um, well, I had written novels when I was younger, but they were more conventional, you know, single line novels or semi single line novels. Um, so th- it was very hard. I would say I have the idea that since when I re- wrote linked stories, I, I you know, made them up as I went along. You know, I wrote one story and then I pulled out a character and wrote another story. Um, uh, and I thought I could do that in a novel. And um, I hope I never do that again. It was really difficult. Um, I did know how it was going to end, which is was helpful and crucial. I, I knew we were going to come round again to what had happened in the beginning. I had no idea where the middle would go. Um, I threw out a lot of stuff. Um, uh, novels are harder, I think, um, for me anyway, it, it may be that the other forms come more easily, but I'm happy with the way that it turned out. And, um, people seem to, uh, the, the, re- the reviews have praised the, the order of it, the patterning of it. So I'm, 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 you know, I'm proud of that. I'm pleased with that. Did you have any second guessing when you were ordering it and, putting in these characters like you know I think the thing about novels is you start off and and your options are infinity (laughs) and then you have to make these choices and like you said you had written a whole character that you didn't even end up putting in and what is your experience of making these authorial choices does does it do you feel in your gut do you have to write many things and then see what's right with your mind uh, is it instinctual? It's both. Um, I'm a person who um, takes a lot of notes, um, you know, on my computer, in my notebook, whatever. Um, and they're going this way. You know, they're they're arguing with myself about it. 
Um, I don't write um, rough drafts the way many people do. I kind of revise each sentence as I go and then revise again. Um, I'm sort of a slow writer, but, you know, it gets done. Um, but I think it's both a conscious and an unconscious process. Um, I'm not even sure those categories are accurate. You know, it's, it's kind of you, there's parts that come easily. You hear the sentences. They're great. The beginning came really easily to me. Um, and then you're stuck. And then you have to kind of draw on other resources to, to make your way through that. What are those other resources? Um, banging your head against the wall. I think, I mean, there's a kind of stubbornness when you get stuck. Um, I complain to everybody. Um, I, uh, and, and you, I just, I get it wrong a lot of times before it's, it's, I mean, right is even a wrong word, right? Um, before it's better. Um, uh, trial and error. Um, also, I'm always trying to go deeper. Um, so it's usually if it's not working, it's too much on the surface. I mean, just the kind of writing I do, the satisfactions come from some sense of penetrating the, the, the story. So I'm trying to push myself towards that. And when you say that you want to go deeper, is that about character? Is it about language? Is it about plot? What is, how do you know what that looks like? Um, it's somewhat about character. Um, the language in some ways comes, I don't say it comes easily, but it's the first layer for me. Um, I, when I was younger, I, in college, I wanted to be a poet, so I'm used to paying attention to language. Um, and the language is my way in. As I'm writing the sentences, I'm finding the voice for the narrating character, you know, um, that's my way in. I realize go deeper is one of, it's like be yourself, you know, it's one of those phrases that, you know, is a good idea, but, you know, what does that mean? Um, I want to get more serious about what's going on in the sense that, you know, we're all dealing with matters of life and death, you know, and with crucial kind of moral decisions. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, how the characters feel about what they're doing and what it means in terms of harm or help to other people. So all of that is getting under there. Um, I'm trying to hear the phrases that the character would have in his or her own mind for what's going on. Um, one of the writers that I read a lot lately, my, my um, solace in the past year after the election was to read Dickens. And Dickens is brilliant on the phrases, the mental slogans that people have for what they think they're doing. Um, they often repeat them, you know, kind of compulsively. Um, but I love that. And I'm trying to, with the characters, uh, I, I'm trying to to get that and, and how that plays out and, you know, what that means about them. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Joan Silber, author of nine books, including Fools, The Art of Time and Fiction, and Improvement. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Well, I'm going to read Alice Munro because she's, she, I liked her before everybody else did, I would just like to say. Um, when I had to explain to people who she was, I liked her. And now the world knows um, she won the Nobel. Um, and I would say that, I mean, now, for some reason, all of a sudden, because some of the blurbs said it, people are um, comparing me to her, which, of course, I love. Sometimes writers don't like to be compared to other writers, um, but um, Monroe, although she's now widely admired, doesn't have that many followers. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to be a follower for her, even though we're very different in our sensibilities. So I'm going to read um, 
the first couple paragraphs of her story, The Progress of Love, um, which is from the mid-80s. I got a call at work, and it was my father. This was not long after I was divorced and started in the real estate office. Both of my boys were in school. It was a hot enough day in September. My father was so polite, even in the family. He took time to ask me how I was. Country manners. Even if somebody phones up to tell you your house is burning down, they ask first how you are. I'm fine, I said. How are you? Not so good, I guess, said my father in his old way, apologetic but self-respecting. I think your mother's gone. I knew that gone meant dead. I knew that. But for a second or so, I saw my mother in her black straw hat setting off down the lane. The word gone seemed full of nothing but a deep relief and even an excitement, the excitement you feel when a door closes and your house sinks back to normal and you let yourself loose into all the free space around you. That was in my father's voice, too, behind the apology, a queer sound like a gulped breath. But my mother hadn't been a burden, she hadn't been sick a day, and far from feeling relieved at her death, my father took it hard. He never got used to living alone, he said. He went into the Netterfield County home quite willingly. That was, uh, you know, I, I just love, you can hear the way she moves around in time in that, which is what everyone loves about Monroe. And you, you've written about time. Yes, I have a book on time and fiction, and there's a whole long section on um, Monroe's um, wonderful story, The Albanian Virgin, which runs around in time in all sorts of ways. Um, I always was interested in that. The first book I wrote when I was you know, young and stupid and just wrote whatever occurred to me takes place over a 20-year time span, and I didn't know that was considered a, you know, a difficult thing to do. Um, I don't think that thing, I mean, sometimes things do happen in a flash, but I'm most interested in my sense of what's important, I guess, is that they happen over long term. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm really always interested in that. And Monroe is just so dazzling in the way, you know, you're over here and then you're over there. You know, she's in like five different places in just that first section. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm going to read a section that's from a section about Kiki. When I was trying to write about her youthful time in Turkey. And it's very hard to write about place without sounding like a travelogue, so this is what I did. Um, the best time with Osman had been the years in Istanbul, most majestic of cities. She used to stand at the window at dusk to watch crowds of gulls swooping in arcs around the spires and minarets. Dusk in winter was when she waited for Osman to come home, listened for footsteps in the street below. But smitten though she was, rightly smitten, she had never expected it to last. Was that Osmond's doing? Had he been the older, more serious one? What had he seen in her? He liked her right away, too. They talked after three hours that first afternoon, and he said how unusual she was, in a tone that was extremely sexy at the time. By now, she'd spent a lifetime congratulating herself on choosing Turkey, but it had been a random choice a place she wandered into on the ferry from Greece. The meeting point of East and West, she wrote to her family. What she intended to say was that it had a strangeness Europe didn't have, code she couldn't guess at, but was sure she was learning. 
And tell me about why you chose that. Um, I chose that because it was terrible many times over. It's very, the crucial thing in writing any kind of description is that you have to get the character into it. And the temptation is to just say, well, you know, Istanbul has this, Istanbul is this amazing, superb city. So you want to talk about, you know, the, oh, the blue mosque, the this, the that. And of course, it would be inert in the story if I did that. So I had to get Kiki's responses into it um, at the same time that I was describing the place, what the place is to her. Um, And it, it took a lot of tries to get that. And there were a lot of cuts. Where do you write? Um, I write in, um, I have, I, I live in New York in a not huge apartment. I have a, a, a nice one bedroom apartment. So I write in, um, the bedroom, which is also my study. I have my computer at a, at a little desk in the corner. I'm very compartmentalized as a person. You know, I always write there and then I read in another room and I work at certain times of day. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh, well, I travel. Um, travel is very, um, important to me. I started traveling to Asia, which is obviously a, a bigger deal, um, in 01. Um, and I have gone, you know, once or twice a year, every year since. Um, so, and now I'm, I'm planning a trip to Sri Lanka in March. And, you know, I spent hours last night looking at, um, you know, airplane schedules. Um, so I love that. I love the sense of other, you know, there's, there's something else going on that's not writing. Um, when I do that, and of course it's played into um, my writing as well. And the other way I get away from it is I'm kind of an active student of Buddhism. I'm not really a practicing student necessarily, but, um, that's been very important to me. And that's also, you know, you know, the writing world isn't everything. It gives you another perspective. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, my friend Myra Goldberg, to whom this book is dedicated, and one other book is the one friend that I show stuff to. I wait till I've finished a whole chapter uh, or a whole story and um, show it to her. And then she'll just say one or two things like, you know, the ending, you know, there's something missing here, or this character needs to get a little more complicated. And I know her so well, I know what she means. Um, and I usually do what she says. And then I show it to her again when, when I made the adjustments. And how have you dealt with rejection? Oh, you know, there's a long answer and a short answer to that. Um, the short answer is, you know, nevertheless, she persisted. Um, but um, uh, uh, the longer answer is I, I've had a long zigzagging career and I did quite well in the beginning. And then there was a middle period when it was really hard to get to stuff published. I have a a 13-year gap in, in my books, um, you know, in the dates of publication. Um, and I did a couple of things uh, during that time um, to, to buoy myself up. Um, I became a volunteer for Gay Men's Health Crisis. I was what they called then a buddy. Um, and I saw two different people, uh, first one and then another. Um, and, I, and that's also when I became interested in Buddhism, which was very important to me. Um, I, I saw I needed something else to run on, you know, for this later period of my life. Um, and I would say the writing changed. That's when I didn't do it because they didn't like me before. It was more like, they don't like me anyway. I can do whatever I want to do. And that's when I started, um, I wrote the first story for the first book of Link stories, um, Ideas of Heaven. And that story, I was really taking a flyer on something I'd never tried to do before. I was trying to get in all sorts of stuff. I was trying to write a story with very deep pockets. And that was kind of like, oh, what the hell? 
Um, so sometimes, um, I don't want to say rejection can be freeing because that sounds a little sappy, but something like that happens. In some ways, it gave me a kind of freedom. And what is your favorite word? Oh, probably evening. Uh, it's my favorite time of day, and I, and I love the sound of that word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Joan Silber, author of nine books, including Fools, The Art of Time and Fiction, and Improvement. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.